Thank you for listening to this teaching from Table Church in Des Moines, Iowa. We are in a series called Seven Questions Jesus Asked. Jesus understood that sometimes he could say more with a simple question than with a thousand other words. His questions are known for their ability to pierce through our intentions and get to the heart of the matter. In this series, we are exploring seven questions that he asked people 2,000 years ago, but are just as relevant for us today. And as always, please be sure to check us out at tablechurchdsm.org. Thank you for listening. Once again, everyone, good morning and welcome to Table Church. My name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here. And I just want to let you know about something going on today. It's called Table Talk. Table Talk is an event that we will be doing at 5 o'clock today at our ministry center, which is only about a mile from here down the interstate. Table Talk is specifically for new people. So if you are new-ish to Table Church, I'll let you define new-ish. Basically, if you've never come to Table Talk or you haven't, you've just started coming since the last one, which was, I don't know, a couple months ago, um, even if today's your first time at Table Church, I want to invite you to come to Table Talk. The, the, the reason why it's great is because it's a chance for you to get to know the staff, to hear more about the story of Table Church, who we are, what we're about, that kind of thing, and we're going to feed you. So uh, if you would like to come today, just write Table Talk on your connection card, and I will see that, and I will get in touch with you as long as you put your contact info on there as well, if we don't have it. And uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, inviting you to that and getting to know you more. So it'll be five o'clock this afternoon at our ministry center, which I will tell you the uh, address, of course, when I contact you, but it's 855 17th Street. So let us know if you want to come. If you don't mind, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand up in the air and an usher will bring you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep the one we give you. Uh, But John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. This will be our text for today. It says this, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, it has been said that there are no such thing as a dumb question. But in our passage today, at first... It seems like Jesus' question would be a pretty strong candidate to be a dumb question. He asks a man who's been crippled for 38 years, do you want to get well? Well, of course he wants to get well, Jesus. He can't walk. Why wouldn't he want to get well? Now, let's just assume that 38 years is basically his whole life. He doesn't know what it's like to walk. He doesn't know what it's like to run. He doesn't know what it's like to dance or to play with his kids if he has them. He's at the mercy of everyone around him all the time. 
They have to carry him to his spot near the pool. They have to bring him food. They have to meet his needs, probably even take him to the bathroom. Of course he wants to get well. What a silly question, Jesus. Now, one of the things that Jesus was best at was asking questions. And Jesus asked a lot of questions throughout the Gospels. In fact, a lot of times when somebody would ask him a question, he'd respond with a question. And one of the things about his questions is that Jesus' questions had a unique ability to kind of cut to the motives of the person that he's asking the question of. Sometimes Jesus could say more with a question than he could with a thousand explanations. Because they always force us to examine our motives, to be honest with ourselves about what's really going on inside. That's why we're starting a new series today. It's called Seven Questions Jesus Asked. We're going to be looking at seven questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels. And we're going to be letting him ask them of us as well. Now, today's question, as I've said, it seems a little silly at first, but it actually exposes Jesus' intimate understanding of the human heart. Because listen, being made well isn't always what we want. No matter how much we try to convince ourselves that it is, being made well isn't always what we want. And Jesus knows that about us. In fact, I remember uh, back when I was a kid, the days before COVID when a stuffy nose wouldn't keep you home from school, you know? Like sometimes you get sick and you stay home from school, but there's like this, this special zone where you're sick enough to stay home from school, but you're not so sick that you feel awful. And so you get to stay home in your pajamas, lying on the couch, eating ice chips made of Kool-Aid. That's what we did in our house, watching cartoons all day. Like, it's a pretty sweet setup, really. If you can find that, that zone right there, it's, it's really not bad. But then, of course, there comes a moment where the teacher sends the packet of worksheets home that you missed. And you're like, how in the world do we do this many worksheets in a day? And of course, you don't know how to do them because you weren't there for the lesson. And then you have to go back to school and you feel behind. And it's just, listen, sometimes getting well isn't all it's cracked up to be. We clearly can't draw a close parallel between getting a little sick and staying home from school and being paralyzed or crippled for 38 years. I mean, these are two very different things, are they not? But... There might be some similarities. There might be some transferable principles from that illustration. Because what this man had to realize is that what we almost realize, which is that getting well also means getting up. Getting well also means getting up. And I'm going to talk about what I mean by that here in a minute. Imagine how disorienting it would be to suddenly be able to walk. Like, we don't know if this man had any family you know, maybe now he's got to go figure out how to get a job. Maybe now he's expected to be at certain places at certain times to fill a social role. And he kind of has to relearn life. I'm sure there was an initial thrill to being healed, but I wonder if there was an a moment where things started to dawn on him. Oh, everything's different now. Nothing about my life will ever be the same as what it once was, all in a moment. Perhaps it isn't a silly question at all. Do you want to get well? Because getting well also means getting up. 
And listen, getting up means standing on our own two feet. It means new responsibilities. It means new challenges. It means accountability. It means expectations. It might not be so silly of Jesus to ask this man if he wants to be well. Now, it is a central teaching in the Bible that you and me are not well. Our soul is not well. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Stop there for a second. Above all things. That means that like there's nothing else in the universe that's more deceitful than the human heart. And it says, and desperately sick. Some translations say wicked. We're not well. And the problem with our sickness is that it convinces us that the things that harm us are actually helpful. The things that harm us are actually good for us. That's what this sickness does. Imagine a mental illness that convinces you that thumbtacks are candy corn. And so you're just like popping those things like a yummy snack. You know, that's what sin does to us. Not only does it make you sick, it makes you want the things that will harm you. And so when Jesus comes to us and says, do you want to get well? What we hear is, do you want to stop doing the fun things? And we're like, no. I saw a reel on Instagram recently. It was the most stressful thing I've ever seen. It was skydiver and like his helmet cam footage. And the guy gets tangled up in his parachute ropes and he's just plummeting to the earth. And I'm like, how is this going to end well? And like at the last minute, he cuts himself free from his parachute and releases a secondary chute. And he still hits the ground pretty hard, but not nearly as hard as he would have otherwise. And I think it's a kind of a, it's just a good illustration. Like this is, this is us. We're entangled in our sin, you know, and we're plummeting to the earth. And Jesus is like, hey, do you want to get well? We're like, no, Jesus, I'm good. That image is, I mean, that's our situation. Now, I've long thought that one of the greatest discipleship organizations on planet Earth is Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, They may not necessarily have Jesus explicitly at the center, although I've known many people that have gone through it that have had Jesus at the center as they've worked the steps. Um, But if what we're talking about here is like forming a life and, and changing behavior and that kind of thing, like, They've got something figured out, right? Now, what the 12 steps do is is they force you to admit that you are not well. That's step one. That's where it all starts. They know change cannot happen. Growth cannot happen until you admit that you need to get well. I want to walk through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous here with us briefly. And uh, I've replaced every mention. They use the phrase God as we understood him. I just put the word Jesus there. Figure that's cool here. Uh, And then I've replaced any mention of alcohol with the word sin. And I just want you to see how this is. I mean, it's just like, I can't come up with a better approach to discipleship than this. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over sin, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now in AA, they'd say powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. But for us today, we're making this theological here. We're powerless over sin. Our lives have become unmanageable. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians that we're dead in our sins. Dead people don't have a lot of power, do they? That's what it describes us as. We're dead in our sins. Paul asks, who will rescue me from this 
body of sin and death. Okay, so, so in a similar way, this is us. Whether or not you're addicted to alcohol, like this is, this is us. Our lives become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I like how they use the word sanity there because what that means is that we're actually insane before it. That's a tough thing to admit of ourselves, is it not? That we need to be restored to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over, the care, over to the care of Jesus. Zero in on that word will for a second. What is more precious to an American than their will? And you're telling me to turn my will over to somebody else. Think about what that means. It means that Jesus gets to tell you what you should want. Because that's your will. Think about the level of surrender that Christianity is calling us to here. I don't think we sometimes don't quite realize just how radical this is. Step four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Wow, searching and fearless moral inventory. When was the last time you made a fearless moral inventory? You're just like, I am going to be absolutely honest with myself about everything, no matter where it may take me, no matter what conclusion I may come to about my habits or my behavior about who I am. It's aggressive. Step five is a big one. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. You see how they're just not leaving any wiggle room here? Like they have it worded so concisely. You know, if you know anyone that's gone through the 12 steps, you know, step five, the fifth step is a big one. Uh, maybe you know someone who's, who's worked the steps or maybe you have or maybe you know somebody who's sat for a fifth step. So when it talks about, um, you know, another human being, admitting it to another human being, so what you do is you get in a room with another person and you tell them all of your skeletons in your closet. You tell them all of your deepest, darkest secrets. You just lay it all out there. Sometimes it takes hours. I've heard of fifth steps that last a whole afternoon or more. Like it can be a long, drawn out, exhausting process. And you say it all to the person who's listening to you and they just respond in grace. They just listen. And it has the power to change a life. It's remarkable. Step six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. This is where we answer the question, do you want to get well? Because this is where it's like, okay, yes, God, take alcohol from me. And for an addict, that's scary. And for us, we have our own security blankets, our own crutches. And this is where we say, yes, God, I, I want you to take this thing from me. I want to get up. Step seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. All. Going back your whole life. Like it's rigorous. Step nine, we made direct amends to such people whenever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. And so this is where you go back to that person from high school that you were mean to. 
and you try to make amends with them. And they may or may not accept it. And you humbly put yourself out for that. Step 10, we continued to make personal inventory when we were wrong and promptly admitted it. So the moment that we mess up, we promptly admit it. You know how hard it is for some people to say sorry? Because the heart of our illness that we're talking about here today is pride. And admitting it when you're wrong is a missile into the heart of pride. Step 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with Jesus, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. That sounds like a good prayer to me. And step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to sinners and to practice these principles in all our affairs. You know what this is? That's called making disciples. This is taking the good news and inviting people into it. Now, this is why Jesus asks us if we want to get well, because getting well means getting up, and getting up means doing all of that. That's what we're talking about here. You know all the wisdom in those, in those steps that can all be found in the New Testament? Nothing there is original. But it's one of the most concise distillations of the life of discipleship I think you can come up with. That's what the life of a follower of Jesus should look like. But listen, if, it begins by admitting that we have to be made well. That we're powerless over our sin, that our life has become unmanageable, and that only a power greater than us can restore us. But what happens is instead of doing that, we look elsewhere. That's what the man in our story does. Verse 6, here's what it says. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, the people in Jesus' day, they had their own ideas of how to be made well, and one of them was that you get into this pool, and it should heal you somehow. Uh, the legend goes that sometimes the waters would somehow get stirred up in the pool of Bethesda. We have a picture of it, by the way. Um, and we don't know exactly how this happened, uh, we don't know why this happened or whatever. They seem to think it was a supernatural occurrence. And they thought that the first one in the pool after this happens uh, would be healed of their ailment. Now, whatever the case, the point is that this man had put his trust in something that was probably never going to work. While the real power to heal him was staring him in the face. Listen, we look everywhere for healing other than the one place it can be found. And for 38 years, this guy, he tried and he tried to be the first one into that magical pool, but he could never get there. And you know what? Even if he did, he'd have probably been disappointed. But Jesus simply speaks a word and he's healed. So then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now, I'm trying to imagine what this scene must have been like. I like to kind of position myself in there as like a third party observer. I think The Chosen has done an episode on this, but I haven't seen it. So I'm going to, I got my own version of how I think it would have gone. If I were directing the scene, oh, here's how I would do it. I'd be like, this guy's rambling on uh, with excuses about how he, you know, do you want to be healed? Well, sure, but this and this and this. And then Jesus just interrupts him. Get up. Can you imagine? 
Well, sure, I want to be healed. I've been trying for years to get down into this pool of water, but every time it gets stirred up, I start crawling my way towards it, and some young buck with a paper cut gets in first. So I can never seem to make it get up. What? Get up. Take your mat. Walk. See, sometimes Jesus just has to cut through our excuses, you know? He's just got to interrupt us. All of our attempts to find healing elsewhere. Sometimes what we need is for Jesus to impose himself upon us like he did with that man. So right now, if you're you're caught in a web of sin, if you're realizing that you need to be made well, ask yourself, are you looking everywhere else other than Jesus? Are you making excuses that are never going to actually work? Now, probably uh, one of the world's biggest authorities on what it means to live in the age, the secular age that we live in, is a philosopher named Charles Taylor. He's Canadian, and uh, he's, he's written this enormous book. I brought it with me today to show you this book. This book is very significant. It's won lots of awards. Uh, Charles Taylor may be um, one of the... I heard one person say he was one of the two greatest philosophers still alive, um, and he's also a believer. He's, he's a Roman Catholic. But he wrote this book called The Secular Age all about our age and why we think the way we do and what are the ideas that have led to basically this kind of post-enlightenment Western world that we inhabit now. Now, I want you to know I have not read this whole book. Okay, I've read like half of it. Um, the Audible is like 32 hours long. <laughs> like who's got that kind of time, Right. And if you want to read it, more power to you. I'm like, I'm not even sure anyone should, honestly. Like, not sure it's the best use of time. But there is another book about this book that's much smaller. (laughs) Written by another philosopher named James Smith called How Not to Be Secular. And this one I would recommend at some point. I mean, it's still heavy lifting. And actually, I'm planning on at some point inviting you to read this with me. Maybe we'll do a book study or something, maybe in the spring, because I think it's that important. Like, I think Christians, there's a, there's a guy that said that Christians should like wake up in the morning and have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, you know? Like, we have to be always vigilant about understanding the world we live in, the ideas that are coming at us, the way, why we think the way we do, and stuff like that. And, and making sure that we always view the world through the lens of the gospel. And so that's one of the things that this big book has helped us do. It's just given such a, a clear and concise and uh, uh, understanding of our world Uh, of our culture, and it it just resonates so well with what we experience that just many, many people have said, look, there's something going on here that's right. And so Charles Taylor is is a wonderful guide to the terrain of our culture, if you will. And now what he does is he, he describes our time that we're living in now with a phrase that you've heard me say many times. It's called the age of authenticity. Now, I've talked about this a lot, and I'm sick of using that phrase. I recently listened to a John Tyson sermon. He talks about Charles Taylor and the age of authenticity as well. And he said that, well, he said, I'm so sick of saying this phrase, but I realize that about the time I'm tired of talking about something is probably about the time that the light bulb starts going on for some. And so I'm going to keep talking about it because I think it matters. I think that it's crucial for a Christian in Des Moines to be asking questions about our culture and the prevailing philosophies and understandings of the world that we live in. And so we're going to keep talking about it. The age of authenticity, that's what we live in today. It teaches that the answer lies within you. Salvation 
freedom, wholeness, enlightenment, actualization, whatever you want to call it, it happens not when you crawl into a magical pool. It happens not when you, I don't know, obey religious dogmas, rituals, or expectations. It happens when you are finally able and willing and courageous enough to fully express and satisfy the impulses and appetites that reside within you. So what this means is that in our day and age, authority has been relocated. In the day of Jesus, and for most of human history, authority for a person in terms of how should I live my life, when it comes to asking the question, how, what is the good life? How should I live my life? The answer was found outside of us. Maybe it's in the will of the gods or God or the king or the nation or whatever outside of us. We have relocated the answer. The authority is now inside of us, within us. Now, we think it's crazy to try to crawl into a magical pool to be healed Actually, probably more people believe in that today than we realize. But most of us here, I'm guessing, don't, don't think that's the case. They would have thought it's crazy to hear us say, oh, you're, you're going to try to heal yourself? How's that going to work? That, I mean, they just, they would have not worked in their grid. Like, they would have had no concept of that back then, I don't think. And so what, what, we're, what we call it is being authentic. It's when you cast off the social mores and the religious rules and the institutional expectations and you present yourself finally to the world in your full, unbridled, authentic glory. It's the follow your heart, you do you, be yourself, shout your truth, basically every Disney princess movie ever written. Uh, but also like on the more like, I don't know, politically right side, it's the don't tread on me stuff. It's like, like all of this is age of authenticity. Like I get to decide who I am and living this out is what is the key to my happiness and salvation. Here's what Taylor means by age of authenticity. It's his own words. He says, I mean the understanding of life that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Now, I want to be clear about something here because it feels like I'm always critiquing this. I am not sure I'd rather live at any other age. Here's what the age of authenticity gets right. Universal human dignity. It understands, although it maybe doesn't have the language to say it, it understands what we would d describe as the idea that there's a, there's a spark of the divine in each of us. Okay, we call it the image of God. Like we are made in the image of God. There is something um, irreducibly valuable and priceless about every single human life. We all matter. Not only the elites, not only the king, like we all matter. And the age of authenticity is saying that. It's saying, look, you have something to offer. And I think that's great. I will say that sometimes it gets confused, doesn't have what I would maybe call the metaphysical anchor for that universal human dignity. Like it's just kind of something we all agree on and think it sounds good, so we say it. Don't always live it that way, but we at least all say that we believe it. Whereas for us as Christians, we would have an anchor. It's in God, right? God is the one who ascribes worth to us. Now, 
there's another part of our theology that the age of authenticity completely misses, which is what we've talked about already. This idea that the heart is deceitfully wicked. The fact that we're all fallen. The fact that we are dead in our sins. That we can't see a foot in front of our face. Rather, the age of authenticity says, no, actually, you, you, are, you have the keys. You and only you know how to live your life well. The gospel, that's not the gospel. The gospel says, no, actually, you're, you're kind of a mess and you probably need some help. Like that's what the gospel says, whereas our age would, would push back against that message while affirming maybe this part of our theology in some oblique, uh, somewhat confused, but nonetheless general way. So there are good things about the age of authenticity. And I, like I said, I'm not sure I'd want to live in any other, any other age. Um, but ultimately, it does boil down to this. I am the answer to my own problems. I can heal myself. The cure for my sickness is not to change who I am, but to be more of who I am. And that's not the gospel. Gospel, kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, says we are powerless and our lives have become unmanageable. And we need, we need a power greater than ourselves. And just like the crippled man, we need Jesus to intervene, to interrupt us, and to cut through our excuses or our denials and to say, get up. So ask yourself, if Jesus asked you the question, do you want to get well? What would you say? And remember, getting well means all, this, all the stuff we've talked about here today. Because getting well also means getting up. Now, if the answer is yes, I want to get well, let me give you three steps. Step one, stop denying. Stop denying that you need to get well, that there is a problem. No, we talked about this, I mean, I prayed earlier, I kind of prayed about this, but some of us live very comfortable and secure lives, which means that we can get away for a while without admitting that we're not well. It's not going to last forever. Some of us are a disaster, I mean, we just won't admit it, you know? We're too proud. We can't bring ourselves to take that first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, to admit you are powerless over sin and your life has become unmanageable. And so you got to stop denying it. You got to face the facts and admit that you need Jesus. As your relationships crumble or your marriage falls apart or you dig deeper into an addiction or your credit card bills rack up, like at some point we have to admit there's something wrong here and I can't fix it. We got to stop denying it. It's time to get well. Step two, stop excusing. The crippled man, he kind of blamed everyone else, right? Like if someone else gets in the water before me, of course I want to get well. But what's your version of that? What's your excuse? Do you refuse to take the next step in your spiritual life because, I mean, your job is really stressful? Well, maybe that's the reason you need to lean in even harder to God. Or parents, look, I got three kids, okay? So I'm putting myself in this boat right now. Do you avoid community? Do you avoid responsibility by hiding behind your kids? Do you use them as a barrier sometimes to connection with God? Ah, I got too much going on. Kids got to do all these things. 
You give yourself a pass. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And I'm just saying, maybe we got to get creative sometimes. And finally, number three, you got to get up. What is the area of your life you need to get up in? Is it time to kick a habit or an addiction? Is it time to engage with your church community? Is it time to reach out to your neighbors or coworkers? Is it time to actually start praying? Maybe that's not something you do. Reading scripture. Maybe those are the things that it looks like for you to take that next step in your life with God. Just remember, Jesus didn't ask the man to get up by his own strength. The man had the ability to stand before he even tried. He'd already been healed. He just didn't know it. God doesn't ask us to do things that he hasn't enabled us to do. So do you want to get well? Only you and God know exactly what that means in your life. But it starts by being honest with yourself, by admitting that you have the problem, that you're not well. That's where it all begins. And so the challenge today is to actually get up, and we're going to come take communion together. And as we do it, we're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave, that we might be made well. The Bible says, by his wounds, we are healed. And so that's something that we're going to remember as we take communion together today. Um, But even more than that, I want to ask you if you have accepted a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the moment we finally admit to ourselves that we aren't well and that we're powerless and that we need a power greater than ourselves, that we need Jesus, that's essentially accepting the gospel. And so if that's where you're at right now, if, if, if you haven't ever done that before and you would like to, then I would love for you to let us know. I'd love to pray with you before we're done here today. I'd love for you to tell us in your card. You can circle a little cross in your connection card. That's how we know that, that you have accepted Christ today, that you want to become a Christian. And so I'm going to pray a prayer here in a moment, and then we're going to take communion. But if that's where you're at, I just want to invite you to engage in, in this prayer with me to, at, a, at a deeper level, okay? Let's pray. Almighty God, we know that that you are here and we know that sometimes it's really hard to do a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Um, but Lord, I ask that we'd have the courage to do that today. Lord, I ask that we would know that you're going to catch us when we do. And then all the ugly stuff that we might encounter, that's precisely why you died. By stuffing it, burying it, ignoring it, pretending it's not there, Lord. We're doing the same to your crucifixion. And so, God, we come to you now in repentance and humility, and we say we are not well. Our lives have become unmanageable, and we need you, Lord. God, would you save us? Would you interrupt our excuses? Would you speak a word that heals us? So, Lord, for anybody here today who wants to know you on that level, I pray that they would simply say, God, save me. I'm sorry. Would you forgive my sin? Would you empower me by your Holy Spirit to walk with you every day? I pray all these things in your name. Amen.